Hey, Happy New Year. You guys have 100% church attendance for the whole year. So far. So far. I'm just saying. Everybody that comes next week, they lost. So you guys are ahead of the game. Um, I've actually been, been waiting to share this particular message with you for a while, but there just kind of never seemed like there was a good time. And then we were supposed to start a new series this weekend, and things just got thrown off. And so uh, sometimes scheduling is crazy around here, so I thought, well, this is the perfect time to share this message. And I'm really excited about it. Um, but this teaching is going to require, require your full attention. And not just your mental attention, but your emotional attention, because it's about the heart. And so um, I'll start with this. How many of you know that real lasting change starts with the heart? <clears throat> I said, how many of you know <laughs> that real lasting change starts with the heart? Okay, now, now half of you are awake. All right, so, because it can't just be in your behavior. A lot of times we go through our whole life trying to change behavior. It can't just be in the behavior. The change has to start with the beliefs that drive the behavior from the inside. That's what's got to change or the change is never going to last. And so that's what the psalmist is talking about in this particular passage we're going to look at today. We're in Psalm 119, verse 112. Yeah, did you know there's a chapter with that many verses? 112 verses. I think it's on record as the longest chapter in the Bible. But it's this amazing chapter of the Psalms where the psalmist has this unique perspective because he's dealing with all these inner things. And he's struggling through all this stuff. And, and here's what he says in verse 112. He says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Forever to the end. In other words, I want this to last. I don't want to make a change in my life and just have it drop off tomorrow or the next week or the week after that. I want to actually see change within me that's going to last for a lifetime. Real change. I don't want to just see some changes in my life for January and then I go back to the old thing. I didn't hand in my gym membership and sign up just to eat junk by Valentine's Day, spiritually speaking. So the psalmist says, I incline my heart. In other words, it has to happen within not just the behavior, but the belief that actually drives the behavior has to change or the change won't stay. And we find this over and over and over again. Every New Year's especially, we realize this as we try to make changes in our life, and none of them stick. And I think that's the majority of us. And so lasting change is what I'm after here. That's what God calls us to, and that happens when I incline my heart. I incline my heart. It's an interesting choice of words because if you incline something, guys, that means that it wasn't naturally in that state to begin with. It had to incline. And so the psalmist is in this position where he's declined. You know, I think more of us maybe are constantly in a state of recline, right? Where we're like in the same state that we woke up in and we never even got out of that state. And sometimes we need to get inclined. We need to incline our hearts because we keep declining. In other words, however we feel, that's just how we ask, act. And so the psalmist says, I act upon my attitude and I incline my heart. Did you know that you're in charge of your heart? Some of you forgot that, but it's true. You're in charge of your heart, and the Bible makes that very clear. I hear people say, well, quit saying people broke your heart. They can't break it if you don't give it to them. It belongs to you. You're in charge of it. You have the ability to control that. And so, so he said, I'm setting my heart in the direction of heaven. I'm setting my heart up in the right direction. And I wonder today, do you have your heart set up in the right direction? Is your heart going in the direction of heaven, in the direction of the things of God? I incline my heart. And I don't think this is something that you do just once. 
You know, like a lot of us want it to be that way. Like I inclined my heart, I surrendered my heart to Jesus back when I was a teenager at church camp and then I was never tempted again. Yeah, that's not how it works. I wish that was how it works. That'd be amazing, but that's not how it works. I wish it was though. I, I kind of wish it was like the infomercial. You know the infomercial for the rotisserie oven? You set it and forget it. That'd be amazing. You set your heart in the right place and it just stays there. You can just forget about it, but that's not how it works. The psalmist is saying it's not enough just to set it and forget it. He said it's more like you set it, you check it, and then you reset it again, and you check it again, and you reset it again because it keeps declining. You have to check your heart and work on it constantly because it's going to decline. And so what happens is your heart, over time, it it declines into a default position. And so for you, maybe it's the default position of despair or discouragement or dysfunction, but it just keeps declining but when you take charge of your heart say it with me take charge of your heart it changes things it's also what the writer of proverbs said it's not just the psalmist the proverbs also said guard your heart that means it's in your power you need to guard your heart to protect it we have to get our heart working before we can get the rest of the stuff working some of us jump ahead and try to do the other stuff but our heart isn't actually healthy and mature and in the right place and so none of the other stuff works you got to start with the heart. Has the doctor ever fussed at you about your cholesterol? Here's an interesting fact that you might not know because I didn't know this for years. You can, be, you can look like the most fit person you've ever seen on the outside and drop dead of a heart attack. Did you know that? It happens all the time. You see some of these people and they're running all the time and they're weightlifting and they look so fit and toned and, and perfectly muscular and all this stuff. Did you know that sometimes they drop dead of heart attacks? Because what's inside is blocked. What's inside has blockage, and it's not healthy and flowing like it's supposed to be. And so sometimes we need to look at the inside. It has to happen in the heart because you can be fit and fall over, dead. You can be married and fall over. You can have all the relationships going right and fall over. You can get a promotion and fall over. You can be successful and fall over. You can be religious and fall over. see it all the time. It has to happen in the heart. But here's the thing. It doesn't start with the heart. It starts with habits. Because habits actually have the ability to change your heart and get your heart in the right place. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your habits actually create the condition of your heart. And so if you're going through life and you're thinking, there's something wrong with my heart, it's not in a good condition, it's time to change your habits. Because that's what's going to make the shift. And, And so I feel like, God is going to help somebody set your heart on things above, as it says, and put it in the right direction. But it's going to require some habits. And the habits are all right here in the next few verses. Isn't that convenient? So let's look at it. We'll start at the beginning again. He says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever and ever to the end. And then this is the next verse, guys. He says, I hate. I hate. What's that word doing in the Bible? I thought we're supposed to love everything. No. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And I don't think I should move on before we address that, do you? Because he says, I hate this. What he's saying is the double-mindedness, the love-hate relationship, the going back and forth, the the loop. He says, I hate this. It's not a person I hate. It's a thing I hate. I hate it. And see, the thing about hate, guys, and you're not going to, some of you are going to go, what, when I say this, but I'll explain it, so keep listening. One of the most powerful forces that can change your life is actually hate, not love. 
And some of us don't realize that, and that's why we don't make permanent change. Before you start wanting to reach goals and accomplish things for God and make changes in your life, sometimes the first thing you have to do is make a decision about what are the things that you need to start hating. And again, I'm not talking about people. We're not to hate anybody. But there's things, biblically speaking, that the Bible actually instructs us to hate. And I'll get to that in a minute. You know, sometimes for me, with some things in my life, it feels like I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love it, but I hate it at the same time. Sometimes I feel like King David, because there was this time in King David's life where his son Absalom dies. And Joab comes to him and says, hey, your son is dead. And David's going through this double-mindedness, this, this turmoil. His heart is losing its peace because before his son died, his son Absalom was actually trying to steal the throne from David. And so he was very angry at his son Absalom when he died. But then he gets the news that his son has died and he starts weeping because of his love for his son. He just goes into a place of despair. And Joab actually calls him on it. He says, man, you need to get it together. He says, you hate what you're supposed to love. You love what you're supposed to hate. It's this double-mindedness thing. And that's the problem with a lot of us is we often hate what's trying to deliver us and we love what's trying to destroy us. It should be the other way around. And I, I feel that way about certain things in my life, about certain actions or certain behaviors in my life. I love how they feel for a minute, but I hate the crash afterward. <sighs> and certain things in my life, I hate how they feel when I'm doing them, but I love the result. And I wish, I wish that that double-mindedness could just go away. I hate it. Exhibit A, I hate sit-ups. <laughs> right? Does anybody really like sit-ups? Maybe. Maybe the people with the six-packs do. I don't know. But, you know, you know the reason that I always hated it is because it wasn't a habit. It wasn't something I'd worked into my life and spent enough time doing, and so I always hated it. But here's the thing. You don't have to accept your default position about anything. You have the choice to change it and incline your heart and get rid of that double-mindedness. I incline my heart. Get the pen ready. There's some good stuff coming. <laughs> You're going to burn out the pen. I used, to, I used to hate receiving feedback about my performance in anything. I used to hate that. But finally, I got to the point of maturity and healthiness where I welcome feedback about my performance. And not only that, but I go to people I trust and ask for feedback so I can get better. And only when I started to love what I formerly hate and make it a habit did my performance start to improve. I used to hate people calling me on stuff, saying, you're doing that wrong and that's not okay. You need to change this in your life. I used to hate that because I had an ego. And finally, though, I got to the point where I started to love what I formerly hated and not only, again, welcome it, but ask people that I trust for what can I change in my life? What do you notice in my life that's not okay that God would want to change? And only then did my character start to be shaped differently. Sometimes you have to get to the point where what you hated formerly becomes a habit until you love it and then it changed your heart from the inside out. You, you, there's things you need to hate. I, you need to hate self-pity. You need to hate it. And the problem with hating self-pity, guys, is, ooh, it feels really good sometimes. Can we be that real? It feels, it feels, it feels like a whole bag of Oreos going down into your stomach. It just feels good. <laughs> and it's not that I hate the taste of an entire bag of Oreos. I actually love it. It's that I hate what it does to me afterward. <laughs> it's the same thing with self-pity. Guys, this is, this is so good. It's so simple, but it's so deep, and it's profound if you actually apply it. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Before I can do what I love, let me give you some truths here. Number one, I have to know what to hate. 
Some of you need to walk out of here today and understand what it is that you need to start hating that you don't currently hate. Again, not people, ever. But there's some things you need to start hating. Because I love what it does for me, but I hate what it does to me. We have a lot of those things in our lives. I, it's a complicated relationship. A bag of Oreos does something for me when I eat the whole bag in one sitting. It does something for me and I love it. But I hate what happens afterward. I have a long-standing relationship with Oreos, glory to God. <laughs> they were there for me in the midnight hour when nobody else was. <laughs> Working on sermons or whatever. So I love it, but again, I hate it. I love what it does for me, but I hate what it does to me. Do you see the difference? There's a lot of things like that. I feel like this is who I'm supposed to be or how I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do because it feels good now, but I hate what happens afterward. I hate how I feel about it at the end. In other words, I hate all of this. I hate all... I, I hate anger, guys. I hate, I hate anger. But sometimes it makes me feel good. Can, can I be that real? <laughs> sometimes anger makes me feel... It even gets me some results, guys. I have a complicated relationship with anger. Did you know that if you get mad enough, you can get people to do what you want them to do? <laughs> but the problem is, then none of them want to be around you ever again. So I, I, it's, I love how anger feels sometimes, but I hate being alone, so I hate anger. You see how that works? It's a complicated thing. It's all about outcome. Somebody say outcome. Because I hate the outcome of this, and I hate the outcome of that. I, 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 I hate what it does to my marriage. I hate what it does to my relationships. I hate how it disturbs my inner peace and it puts me in a state of turmoil. I hate, I hate it. It's complicated. What else do we got? It's a, it's a complicated relationship that we have with complaining. It's complicated because, man, we love to complain. It makes us feel so good to tell everybody everything going on and all the bad stuff and Oh, man, it feels good. And, you know, you can look at me all you want and say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to complain, so don't do it. Yeah, the Bible says not to do it, but it doesn't say that it's not fun. <laughs> but here's the problem with it. You love complaining, but then somebody comes to you and they say, hey, tell me, about your, tell me about how you're doing. And then you go on for the next 10 minutes with every issue, struggle, concern, everything happening in your life to the point where the next time they see you come and they're doing this. So you might love complaining in the moment, but you're going to hate the outcome, which is nobody wants to talk to you anymore, if that's all you ever do. You see? It's a love-hate relationship, because it's, 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 the, it's the law of diminishing returns. It, it gets you high for a minute. Some of us, I love to talk bad about people. It just makes me feel so good to put them down here, because then I feel like I'm up here. And it makes me feel so much better when I have so much dysfunction if I could just talk about yours for a few minutes. You know, so, and you know, you can, it just feels good sometimes to talk bad about other people's dumb decisions. It's like a natural high. The only problem, though, is you're setting yourself up for decline because then the next time I see you, I can't treat you any better than I spoke about you yesterday. And that's a problem. That's a problem. So it ruins my relationships, and I love what it does for me, but come on, I, I hate what it does to me. How many of you will admit, sometimes it does. It feels good to talk bad about somebody. So, you know, if it's like, I, I'm going to talk bad about something Pastor Matthew did yesterday, or, you know, I'm going to talk bad about, you know, what, who can I pick on? <laughs> what Jake wore, or whatever, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. It just feels good. What they should have done with their kids, 
that I would never would have done. But you're judging. And by the measure you judge, you too shall be judged. You're setting yourself up for decline. In other words, with all these things, I love the taste, but I hate the outcome. It's a double-mindedness. You know, the problem with, with our resolutions, with our desires to change, is that they're not motivated by a healthy kind of hate. You say, healthy hate? Yeah, there's a healthy biblical kind of hate. We're told to, we're told to hate some things. Let me tell you some of mine. I hate racism. I hate poverty. I hate rape. I hate bullying. I was bullied as a kid. I hate seeing it. Whether it's my kid or another kid, I hate getting bullied. Amy will tell you, she has to hold me back sometimes from smacking a kid who's bullying another kid. <laughs> I hate it. My wife said to me recently, I hate being late. She hates being late. Notice she didn't say she loves being on time, though. Because <laughs> she doesn't. But you got to get to the point where you, you, you're going, you know, we got to the point where you're, you're going somewhere, and we, we both kind of realized, I don't want to walk in there like this. <laughs> we're, we're so late, I don't want to walk in there like this, because it's embarrassing, and, and it feels disrespectful or whatever. And so, so we got to the point where eventually we hated that more than we loved hitting the snooze button. See, it's that double-mindedness. You've got you to set the scales back where they need to, to be sometimes. Get your mind on whatever pack of Oreos is yours so that, and say, I hate it. Look at the person next to you say, I hate it. You need to learn to say that. Not I hate you, but I hate it. I hate the double-minded. Guys, I, I hate indecision. I would rather make a, the wrong decision than never make any decisions at all. Because some of us go through our whole life never making any decisions, and then we never accomplish anything for God. I hate indecision. I hate procrastination. I hate, I did it a lot. I still do it a lot. But I finally had to get to the point where I said I hated it. And now I hate the discipline and the preparation too, but I hate the pain of procrastination more than I hate the discipline. I hate it. I said to myself the other day, you know, I, I hated. And I, I used to be, I used to hate people that said this. But I actually can say it truthfully now, guys. And I know it's bizarre, but I think I like exercise. And that's so opposite from where I was a couple years ago. I used to look at people who like to run and just, you're weird. You know, like, I don't understand you. But I think I actually created a habit where now I figured it out, and I, I, I'm serious. I actually like it. And so now all the people that I was like are now rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> I think I'm one of those people now. I think I've reset my heart in that area. And we need to do that in all these different areas. We need to say, I declare a reset. It's time. And, and so there's some things in your life that, that have been on the decline, but maybe as we start this year, God wants you to incline your heart and hate the double-minded and figure out that complicated relationship with some of those things. So maybe this year you're going to love the presence of God. You're going to love the Word of God because it's the only thing that's going to stand for eternity besides the church, and it's the only thing that's true. Train your brain to hate the right things. So you can make permanent lasting changes in your life. Maybe that's why sometimes God lets us get so low. Because then we despise where we're at, so then we actually make the change. Like I hate, biblical example, I hate Egypt. And if I despise it enough, maybe I won't go back to slavery. Maybe I'll actually break free. I hate the double-minded and I love your law. I know what to hate. And then this, number two. You also need to know where to hide. 
nowhere to hide. Do you know where to hide? You better, because it's not a question of if the attacks are going to come. They're going to come. <laughs> They're going to come. That's how life works. And the missiles are going to fly by, and the doubts and the discouragement, the thoughts are going to try to set your heart on the decline and get you off track and move you off the path you're supposed to be on and tempt you to go the other way, take you back to where you were before. And so you have to ask the question, do I know where to hide when the discouragement darts come? Because there's healthy places to hide and there's unhealthy places to hide. Because some of us, we run back to the very same enemy who's attacking us when he's throwing missiles at us. Instead of actually going to the place we're supposed to hide, which will free us of it. And I'm not talking about physical places. I'm not talking about hiding under a box or behind a tree. <laughs> I'm talking about the places that we hide emotionally, the places that we hide in our mind, the places, the ones that are in our heart, the emotional states, and I'll go through a couple of those, but he said, you are my hiding place, Lord. You are my shield. My shield. In other words, when attacks come, I've learned where to run, and the reason that I'm moving forward in my life this year is not because I'm not going to be attacked, but because I know where to run when I am, and I'm acknowledging that. The expectation, guys, that some of us have as we go through life of never having to be attacked is only a setup for disappointment because you're going to be attacked if you're living for Jesus all the time. So the psalmist is basically saying, I set myself up for success because I designate in advance where I'm going to run. It's too late to pick a hiding place once the missiles are flying. <laughs> you need to decide ahead of time where you're going to hide and who you're going to hide behind when the missiles come. You can't find the place once the attack starts. And so the point is, I'm not running to that anymore. I'm not going back there. I'm not going to that place I was before. I can't ask God to protect me from the enemy that I'm continually running back to. Some of us pray all the time, God, will you deliver me from this? Will you protect me from this? Will you help me break free of this? And yet we continue to run back to that very thing. Sometimes it takes a step of obedience before he answers the prayer. And some of us hide in places that seem safe. We think they're safe, but they're not. They, they seem safe. He said, you are my hiding place. You know, Elijah, he went and hid in a cave in the story because it seemed like a safe place to hide. And Jezebel was chasing him and running him down, and she was going to try to kill him, and she was threatening his life. This is an Old Testament story worth reading. If you've never read it, go read it. Because the whisper of God came into the cave and talked to Elijah as Elijah was running from his calling. And the question I would have for you is, are you running from the conflict in life or are you running into it? Because biblically speaking, most of us find our true calling in the midst of conflict, not when we run away from it. And that's what happened in this story and countless other stories. The place of conflict, Elijah, is the place of calling. But you have to be comfortable hiding in the midst of hardships to know that God is your refuge to know that he's your strong tower in the middle of a battle. And Elijah, in the story, he ran as far south as he could go. <laughs> and he hides in a cave and spent the night, and the voice of the Lord comes to the cave and says, Elijah, why are you hiding in here? What are you doing here? Why are you here in this dark, confined space when your calling is out there? Do you not remember that I was with you when you called down fire from heaven and I sent fire from heaven? Do you not remember Mount Carmel, where I came through? You can hide in plain sight when you trust in the goodness of God. Because his shield is everything. 
but you're not going to experience life in dead places, and unfortunately, that's where a lot of us like to run to and hide. I have a buddy, he said I could share this, that he hides behind blame. That's his hiding place, is blame. And you know, blame is a very convenient hiding place. (laughs) And here's the thing, everybody in here has a hiding place. In fact, you have multiple hiding places. We all hide behind, you know, some of, some of you hide behind porn. Some of you hide behind the bottle. Some of you hide behind destructive thought patterns. You hide behind this or that. But every one of us has hiding place or two. And this person's hiding place is blame. Something goes wrong, his immediate reaction is, well, if she hadn't, well, if the car hadn't broke down, you know, and it's always blaming anything but himself. That's where he hides. And, you know, blame... It's a very convenient hiding place because it will shield you, but it shields you from the inconvenience of actually having to make a change yourself. That's blame. It's a very convenient hiding place because, you know, for a little while. In other words, it's a shield, but it's like a shield made of cardboard. It's, not gonna, it's only going to shield you for so long, and it's only going to shield you for so much. And if you ask this person, he would say, yeah, I'll blame everything and everybody every time. I'll never make a change because I always hide behind blame. He'll say, I blame my parents for doing too much when I was a kid, and that's why I'm this way, and then I'll blame them for not doing enough, and that's why I'm this way, and I'll blame it because I got this, and I'll blame it because I didn't get that. Blame is his hiding place. What's yours? Elijah hid in a cave. My buddy hid behind blame. I wonder, do you hide behind low expectations? That one's real common because if you don't expect much in life, you can never be disappointed, so it seems like a convenient place to hide. And so you learn how to hide behind this fake smile, but you don't really have a whole heart. You're hiding behind this fake smile and you present an image because it covers up the the half-heartedness that's on your interior. And if I hide behind an image that I present, then I don't have to actually deal with who I really am that does need to see some change. And the call of God is, is coming forth and whispering just like in the cave and saying there's some changes that need to be made in our hearts. It's time to check our hearts and make some shifts. And it's whispering, come out of fear. Come out of hiding. Come out of self-pity and low expectations. Come out, come out wherever you are. Because <laughs> you know when you, when you hide in the shadow of the Most High, you can abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And there's no better place to hide because you have a shelter. I only want to hide behind God's shield. And I think that this message is timely as we start a new year and it's, it's critical for many of us because God promises in his word that all the resources on heaven and earth are available to his children. But what good will it do if the floodgates of heaven open for the church, for his people, if there's a lot of blockage in our hearts? We can't receive it. We can't have the power. We can't do anything with it. You got to know where to hide. Otherwise, you're going to be running, doing this all year, and you're going to just fall flat on your face. No matter how good you look. Because some of us look real good, but it's all broken inside, and there's blockage. Got to know where to hide. My son and I were playing hide-and-seek a couple weeks ago, and um, <laughs> he, he's kind of short because he's so young still, and he locked himself in the closet, and then he couldn't get out, <laughs> which kind of defeats the point. Um, <laughs> Sometimes it's like that, though, because you're running from something, and then you lock yourself somewhere, you hide yourself somewhere. This is good, because I can be running from something and then lock myself and hide in a place 
where I get caught up in patterns or attitudes that actually end up being a way worse thing than what I was even running from in the first place. That can be so much worse if we just hide in the wrong place. You need a better hiding place, but you've got to hide somewhere. So I don't, know, I don't know what it is for you, but maybe memorize the songs that speak to you. For some of you, that's what you need to do. Sometimes the songs we sing here, they're not just for Sunday. Some of you need to do that in the shower. Some of you need to do it in the car to remind yourself of the promises of God and the words. And Those words are powerful and they enforce these patterns. Where else do we hide? Some of us hide in feeling sorry for myself. That's a hiding place. Fear. So you're going to hide in enemy-held territory and expect to be safe? Because that's actually what you're doing in those situations. But I know where to hide. I've learned where to hide. And it's different for everybody, but I can sing when I'm squeezed. I can sing when I'm in hardship. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but I can still sing there. No matter what's going on in my life, guys, I can still say, I love you, Lord. It's an oldie. And I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul. I can hide there, no matter what I'm going through. The psalmist said, I know where to hide, and I know how to reset my heart. How many used to play Nintendo? Where's my 80s kids? Yeah, there were none last service. I was like, I'm up here alone. (laughs) So you really young people, you don't know this, but you can do everything from your controller now with these games, but back for those of us that played the first games, you couldn't do anything from the controller. So if you needed to start over and start over on your progress and restart, reset, you had to walk all the way over to the machine and hold in the reset button. <laughs> Some of you need to do that. You need to get off the couch, walk over to the machine and hit the reset button and reset your heart to an inclined position. That's what needs to happen. I set my heart to keep your commands. You've got to reset your heart. It's not that the missiles are never going to fly. It's just that I finally learned how to duck. They're coming, but I learned how to let them miss me. And I know where to hide. And I'm pointing my heart now in the direction of my destiny instead of the direction of dysfunction, which is all I've known. You've got to reset it. Reset it. So I know what to hate. I know where to hide. And then the last one, you also have to know how to hope. Man, that might be the most important thing for those of you that haven't learned how to hope yet. Raise your hand if you have hope. It's good to have hope, right? It's good. But in this particular sentence, the psalmist doesn't actually say, I have hope. He says, I hope. And I can't remember if I learned it in third grade English or fourth, but the difference between I have hope and I hope is that in the first one it's a noun, and in the second one it's a verb. Meaning here, he's not saying I have hope. He's saying, I hope. I choose to hope. It's something I do, not something I have. It's an active hope. And I think that's really important for us to embrace. It's an active hope. Because you cannot go another year of your life, guys, hoping it gets better. Sometimes you've got to put some action in it. Like, like that dumb line that some people say, hope for the best, expect the worst. That's clever, but it's crap. 
Can we be that real? Hope doesn't just, I wish it would. I wish it would work that way. If you don't know how to hope, you need to learn. It's time to learn. Because when we say, when we say things like, I hope in your word, it's not just a cute little thing that we put on our refrigerator and look at once a year. It's something we do every day and we choose to do it and it's an active thing that we do. I hope in your word. Not I've been given hope in your word. No, I'm choosing to do it. I hope in your word. It's critical. It's a way of living, in other words. I hope. Somebody say, I hope. I hope. What does hope do? Hope, hope puts your hand to the thing that you're hoping for. Because some people spend their entire life praying and wishing and hoping for stuff, but they don't ever put their hand to it, and sometimes God wants us to participate and act before the thing happens. A lot of times it follows obedience. And sometimes I believe that he's saying, you're hoping for this thing, but you're not doing the first five things I asked you to do first. So why would I bring this thing yet? I haven't seen your faithfulness yet. It's an active thing. It's a way of living. Not just in my heart, but an active thing. You have to put your hand to it because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And I think God wants to open our hearts to a lot of things this year. But you're going to have to put your hand to what you're hoping for. In other words, you're going to have to work it. You're going to have to work on it. For example, I don't hope it's not cold when I go outside. I put on a jacket. Yeah, because it's going to be cold. Another example, last, last weekend was the, the last weekend of the year, right? It was the last weekend of 2018, which if you don't know this, for churches, historically, it's like the lowest attended weekend of the year. People are recovering from Christmas. They're in food comas, and they're, <laughs> they're tired, out of town, family is in town, all that stuff. And, you know, it's just something that you expect. And somebody said, you know, maybe we can hope that it's full, though, Jared. Let's hope that it's full. You know, maybe we'll have record attendance. And I said, no, my hope's not going to be that the room is full. My hope's going to be that God gives me exactly what I need to say to everybody that just comes. Period. That's my, that's, that's how I hope. I don't hope it's not cold. I go outside, but I put a jacket on first. I don't hope the missiles aren't going to fly. I charge the hill. That's how you choose to hope. It's a choice. And my, my hope is not in the path that I am traveling on. My hope is in the promise of God. Because if you know the history of God's people, the path was often like this, but they still ended up with the promise. And so even if you're on the crazy path, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere, he always fulfills his promise. He never has broken a promise, and he never will. We're the ones that get off the path and do it in a way where the path takes the long way around. And sometimes it's for teaching us, but hey, that's another message. I hope in your word. My hope's not in the path. It's in his word. It's in the promise. How many would be willing to say, I received something from the word of God today? Okay. Because you can, you can feel it when he's opening your heart. You can feel it. And guys, I'm so excited about this year at Rise Church. It's going to be an incredible year. And God's going to do incredible things. And I'm just excited to be a part of it. And um, we're starting a brand new series next week. I hope you keep your 100% attendance. You started today. It's going to be good. Um, it's going to be just more about being intentional in the way that we live for Jesus Christ. 
And this would be my this would be my bold, unapologetic challenge to you this morning. I would challenge you to be intentional about the things that God has asked of you this year. Because in this church world, <laughs> church culture, whatever you want to call it, we can all get to this place where we just kind of go through the motions. We walk in, we walk out, we sing the songs, we listen to the word. But if we're not intentional about making changes in our hearts that God has asked us to make, it's futile. So that'd be my challenge, just to be intentional. And the last thing I'd throw out is I've seen it too much. (laughs) You cannot see lasting change in your life without God's power and God's people. And it's not true of everybody, but I just want to throw out there that when you come into church, and the only time you ever come in is when you come in and you slip out on Sunday, it's really hard to be connected to God's people. And so I would challenge you to serve on a ministry team, join a small group or a Bible study, get connected to the people of God, because that's where the real growth happens. This is like the rally. <laughs> this is like the, the party. This is, the, this is the, the, the start of the week. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And so I would just be intentional about your relationships with the people of God because that's what really makes you grow and helps you check your heart.